0: So we'll get to that. I did not. I know we talked about it before we recorded the last podcast and I completely forgot about it. So we were going to mention something about the audio and just tell listeners that we're working on it. And I for- completely forgot to to put it on there. And I thought, OK, do I want to record another segment and add it to the front? But I didn't know that that was necessarily the, the right approach either. So
1: I'll let it pass now. I mean,
0: yeah, as long as it's as long as it's fixed. So uh, and then I do have one. I, I love to share revelations. So in my self-reflection and meditation. No, no. Oh, not, that <laughs> not that revelation. OK, good. I have been. For a long time, and I know you are, too. Uh, I've been a people watcher, so I grew up with aspirations of being a novelist. And so from a very young age, I was fascinated with how people talked. And so I would kind of eavesdrop a little bit and listen to their speech patterns and how they talk to each other and the types of conversations. But I've also enjoyed just watching people and trying to pick up on some of their nuances and everything. And um, at graduation this past weekend, great opportunity for for people watching. Oh, yeah. And we had gotten to the stadium early to get seats. So, uh, lots of opportunity to sit there and, and do people watching. And so, I'm, I'm doing this and realize almost instantaneously that I have some negativity in my people watching. I'm judging people based on appearance, other things. And I quickly tell myself, you know. Let's get into a positive frame of mind. Let's not be judgy. And so I start watching people with positive intent. Let's put it that way. And start uh, looking for things to mentally compliment them on. And, Mm -hmm. And then this was my revelation. I realized I'm still judging people. I'm just doing it from a different frame, but I'm still judging people. And so realized that judging is not uh, an indication of, I mean, there's good judging and bad judgment, but it's still judgment. And all I was basing it on was appearance. You know, it might have been the way someone walked, or it may have been a smile, and I appreciated the brightness of their smile, or it may have been something they were wearing, but I was still judging them. And so the revelation for me was, uh, I need to get away from that mentality of judging entirely, and I still enjoy people watching. So I, what I did instead was I started, making little stories up in my mind for people like they look like they uh are really happy today and they look like you know so rather than judging i'm trying to cuz i'm still very interested in watching people's behavior mm-hmm. so anyway that was
1: well, it, i know there i don't hear a question there but noticing people is a form of caring When I don't care, I'm not paying any attention to what I don't care about. So the fact that you're caring naturally goes to people. You weren't looking at the rafters. Were they constructed properly? You weren't looking at the sanitation. Was it clean enough for you? Or were the chairs straight enough for you? No, you're looking at what really mattered. The people. When you notice... What I consider to be preferences. Because I can like a smile more than I like a frown. Mm -hmm. Or I can respond to a smile in a different way than a frown. But if I'm not judging one as better than the other, just I prefer one to the other, but I can deal with either. But if I'm dealing with a frown, I know it's not to stay in Frownville. I deal with the frown because I would like to invite them into Smileville. Or Caringville. Or Someone Noticedville. Something that allows them, even if they're frowning, they frown just not quite as tightly. I can't make them happy. But I can also make them just a little a little, not contribute to the tightness of the frown. So in noticing, that's what I look for. I look for where's somebody enjoying something? And I say, yeah, I've enjoyed that too. That's sweet. I'm so glad they can do that.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And when I see somebody like looking around or bored or restless or whatever. I know what that feels like too. And if I'm not going to take away time from my immediate family, I may go over and say, I really don't get a good vibe out of this place much either. And we start talking about restlessness or why are we here or who do you care about? Like you're here for somebody as a family member or as a friend or as a whatever. So, what do you care about? Why are you here? And let's focus on that because we're here for a good purpose. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess what I'm asking you to consider is that there's a judginess, which is, oh, they shouldn't be doing that. Versus, oh, when they do that, I can see that they're this. Because that's usually. Yeah. So I, I'm not telling them, Ah, oh, sucks to be them. I go, is there anything I can do here? that? I'm, You know, time and energy and space, and if I'm not neglecting someone else, can I go and attend to someone else? That's my judgment. That's my noticing. Those are my choices. When I make choices in the direction of caring, I have a better experience at the event I'm at. When I just sit back and just spectate, I mean, literally just like watch. Yeah. I might as well be watching TV at home. I'm not engaged. I'm just sitting there as a spectator thinking I'm neutral. I'm not neutral. I'm a little cold. I mean, if you're looking at me from the outside, I look like I'm not engaged or involved at all in life, in what's going on around me. That's a good point. And it's because I'm telling myself I'm neutral. I'm the Switzerland of spectators here. I'm not going to take any position on any issues. Meanwhile, I'll tell you how to keep your clocks running.
0: <laughs> All right. You ready to get started? Sure. Okay. Hello and welcome to the Thinking Not Podcast. Charlie. We have a fascinating topic to deal with today, and I don't want to make light of it. So I'll just ask you how you're feeling about today's topic of imposter syndrome. I feel like a poser. (laughs) But you're not. (laughs) I know you're not. (laughs) All right. Well, you know, uh, throughout my career, I've coached and mentored a lot of people. And there were always those people who really could have done Anything they wanted. They could have been the CEO if they wanted to be the the CEO, but they just couldn't seem to get out of their own way. And in looking back, I've realized that for most of those people, it wasn't a lack of intelligence or drive or work ethic because they were they were already successful. I mean, some of them were very successful salespeople. The problem was them sabotaging themselves not allowing themselves to be as successful as they could have been. And so I've been fascinated with the topic of imposter phenomenon or imposter syndrome or IS, whatever you want to call it, because I've seen how it is both caused by corporate culture as well as how it can affect corporate culture. And I'm eager to explore it with you and to uh, to find out your thoughts. Uh, it is a weighty topic and one that affects most of us at some point in our lives. Unfortunately for some, it affects them over and over again. And I want to see if we can understand it a little bit better and give people a few ideas for how they can recognize it and begin to perhaps quiet that that inner critic. Sound good? Sure. All right. So listeners, if you're ready, then let's grab a cup of coffee and chat. The Thinking Knot is a podcast developed to help those who are trying to become better, a little bit better today than yesterday. It is an honest dialogue about the real life challenges we each encounter as intention meets obstacle in the course of an every day. In our conversation, we weigh rational thought against our gut feeling of what is right, and we forge a path together using what is in our hearts, if we can all just awaken and get into rhythm with that beat. Thanks for joining today's discussion. All right, Charlie, I know we've talked about imposter syndrome before on the podcast. Um, it was, I think, a segment on... 10 Random Cards, one of our 10 Random Cards sessions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, So we've touched on it a little bit, but we said that we would come back to it. And so today is that day. We've also talked about it in some of our personal conversations. For those who are new to imposter syndrome, maybe we should start with a quick definition. And I've kind of always thought of IS as of feeling that you're a phony. So that's part of it, that you don't deserve success, that you aren't bright or as good as people think you are, and that you don't necessarily fit whatever mold you think you need to fit. But there is several clinical definitions. And so uh, I thought I would share one clinical point of view that some mental health professionals have come up with. and. That is, uh, there are three characteristics that you need to exhibit. So you need all three of these to be kind of classified with imposter syndrome. And the first is uh, belief that you have fooled other people. The second is a fear of being exposed as an imposter or a fraud. And the third is an inability to attribute your own achievement to internal qualities such as intelligence or skill or whatever, right? So are you comfortable with with that definition? Anything that you'd like to add to that? I believe
1: we're going to have a conversation in which uh, those reactions to that definition will be explored. Okay. So rather than summarizing, because this is the first I've heard of this definition, I say, okay, that is one person's approach. I understand there's nothing objectionable necessarily in there. I just don't think it's goes as
0: deep as it needs to go. Okay. Well, tell me where do you think let's begin the conversation. Where do you think it needs to go a little bit deeper?
1: Well, who hasn't pretended to be something that they're not? Who hasn't pretended even on the playground, uh, when we're in very early ages to, uh, have done something that we didn't do, said something that we didn't say, not stolen something that we did steal. We pretend we learned to pretend early on that if we deny something. That it's difficult to prove, especially when people want to believe us. Okay. So we know we can deceive successfully. We can deceive our parents. We can deceive our friends. We can deceive
0: ourselves. Yes. I think the definition of imposter syndrome, though, is when... That starts to affect other parts of your life, right? So we all do it, we all can pose, we all can be a poser on one thing or another, but when it turns into a cycle of anxiety and or depression because we don't feel like we can live up to the image that we put forth, then it becomes something eh. so I agree, I think everybody has posed or has felt, uh, tried to be something that they're not at one point in their life, but and, and everybody, I think, well, most everybody has felt that they are not as good as the, either the image they've projected, or as other people think, they. So I think everybody has had those feelings at one point or another. The difference is when it becomes a pattern, and when that pattern starts holding you back.
1: And I think that that's where uh, I would want you to uh, come to me uh, with me in the conversation. I meant. Uh, because you're addressing this at the level that it manifests itself in a career, in a corporate environment.
0: Well, so that's the, that's, yeah, so that's the way I started out with. But right. I will tell you, it manifests itself in families. It manifests itself in relationships.
1: Right. So where did all of those begin? They didn't begin in the corporate environment. They began in the family environment which is where I tried to take you to begin with. Let's go back to where really where did we start to pretend?
0: So this is this is my whole thing with imposter syndrome. It's I call it the chicken and the ego ego question, you know, not the chicken and the egg. But uh, which came first, the imposter syndrome or a poor self-image, unhealthy ego? What do you think?
1: I mean, this isn't a trick question. What came first was the deceit. Before my self-esteem was damaged by my deceit, I felt good about myself. Even if I made a mistake, I broke the lamp, I look at it and go, yeah, I broke the lamp. What's mom or dad going to say? That's the first question. And if the question, that the answer I give myself to that question is, all heck is going to break loose. I'm thinking, what are my options here? And very humanly and understandably, one of my options is I could blame somebody else. I could blame the dog. I could say I wasn't in the room. I was somewhere else. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. And I know it was. And you who love me don't want to look at me and tell me I'm lying. Because if you do, everybody's hurt there. You're hurt because you think I'm lying to you. I'm hurt because I know I'm lying to you. So I have to double down and convince you how much I'm not lying to you. And the seeds of the imposter are planted because I'll get away with it. Or I'll be forgiven for it. Or I'll just say, I can't prove it, but please don't lie to me. And I'll go, I won't. But I know in my hard hearts, I probably will again. And I set myself up for ruining my self-esteem with my very first dishonesty.
0: Well, I would. So you seem, and I know you're not doing this intentionally, but you seem to be putting the fault on the five-year-old versus the parents and uh, at the, and I'm not suggesting that.
1: And you're not. And, and so I'm not taking it that way, but what I'm pointing us towards is it's very natural for the child to want to do that. Mm -hmm. It's also very natural for the parent to be hurt. And in that hurt reaction, discipline the child in a way that is not conducive to learning it's punishment as opposed to well let's just walk through this why were you afraid to tell me the truth what have I done if as a parent I have done something if you just want to try and see it if you can get away with it I'm going to tell you, you can fool me. I'm going to believe you. You can lie to me and I'm going to believe you. And it's going to kill you, not me. Because you're going to hate putting your head on the pillow knowing that you lied to me when I trusted you and I believed you. So I don't know. I don't care who knocked over the lamp. Lamp's broken. I'll fix it. I'm an adult. But if I make you as my child, whom I love and want to foster wellness in, if I make you feel like you can't tell me the truth, because, because, because I have, I have an egg and a chicken in there. And I think I'm acting out from the way I was treated when I was five. I believe that my parents did what they thought was best with me when they schwacked me, and so my initial reaction is to then schwack uh, mine, because that's what that's what will teach you to respect property. That's will teach you to be more careful.
0: Accountability that? and right, yeah,
1: right. But what it does actually is teaches me to be afraid of making a mistake.
0: So, in those situations. My assumption is that the fears that the child is facing are fears of punishment, fears of love being taken away. That love is conditional, and you have to behave. Yes. So, what? How do we
1: dissuade? This isn't a
0: parenting. This isn't a parenting podcast. But uh,
1: No, no, no. But how do we dissuade? The child against that very human experiment, because that's all. We don't know that it's wrong, necessarily. At that age, we're trying to discover what feels right. Yeah, you're what,
0: testing limits. You're testing yeah.
1: all, all of it. So in, in that regard, I ask uh, us to treat even adult mistakes As something that uh, can be leaned into as opposed to instantly and harshly judged and punished. Okay. Mistake is a mistake. The reason why we hide our mistakes is because no one's ever helped us learn from them. We've only, every time we've said, yes, I did that, the consequences were uh, severe and perhaps disproportionate, to teach me a lesson. I don't think that the lesson I'm learning is the lesson you were trying to teach me. You've driven my mistakes underground. I hide them from you so that I don't get your disapproval, or your lack of love, or your lack of respect, or your whatever you're going to punish me with could be take away whatever. And I don't know how taking away this relates to me breaking the lamp. But you think it makes perfect sense to you. And I'm like, whatever, because I don't connect the two occurrences. The lamp got broken, and now I don't have my iPhone for a week. Okay. I'm not really being taught what is going on here? What is the nature of mistake and why is it compounded when I tried to be dishonest about it? Punishment from the dishonesty is far more long lasting and severe than any lamp breakage could possibly
0: be in my life. What it means to me. The the child won't ever remember the lamp but what they will remember is the scolding or the punishment or the feeling or the lie that got them out of it or right
1: all right so so we have to go and i did a little prep work and Mm -hmm. so i'm going to jump into something that Uh, i wrote because this being a weighty subject uh, i call it not the imposter syndrome i call it the impossible syndrome for example uh, we have a holiday uh, called Mother's Day and Father's Day and Valentine's Day. You name it. We've got Hallmark Days. And on those days, we give tokens of appreciation for that person who's that person. My sweetheart, my mom, my dad, whatever. And in that Card or that sentiment or that gift, I'm trying to sum up all the things I'm thankful for, all the things I appreciate you for, all the love that I think you gave to me in one card say, Here, thank you for everything you did for me this year. And the person who loves us takes the card and goes, That's really sweet. Now, if that card doesn't reflect how you actually behave towards me during the year. I have major issues with this card as a recipient. And I'm trying to be loving and caring and nice to you. And I'm thinking I made over hundred thousand micro choices during the course of this year that were in your favor where I extended patience, generosity, kindness. I tried again to understand you before I tried to get you to understand me. I did all the things that were loving and you give me a card that tells me you checked the box that you love me too. And I'm like, I would much rather you turn to me in one of those micro moments and say, hey, I appreciate what you
0: just did for me there. You just had a moment of grace and love for me. Yeah. Yeah. If they, yeah, if they had that self awareness and. and
1: Well, that is what we, as the adult who know what we're doing in loving this moment, express to them. Say, you know, there are other options here that I could have chosen. You have all these other options too. It's just not up to me to choose them. I choose generosity, patience, and kindness. Your gift to me this year is to try to choose one of those each day for me. I want you to be generous, patient, or kind to me once a day rather than give me a card once a year. Would that work for you? Because then you don't have to buy me anything. You don't have to promise me anything. You don't have to
0: actually do three hundred and sixty-five times Minim- Charlie versus once. I, I mean, come on. What are you know, all right, no know. cards for Charlie for Father's Day?
1: <laughs> <laughs> so so I get this idea that I have to feel a certain way on a certain day. On Mother's Day, Father's Day, and I have to feel a certain way. So I begin to think that if I don't feel that way on that day. Something's wrong with me because I'm supposed to, or let's say it's not on that day. Let's say I go to a wedding or I go to a funeral or I go to a christening or I go to an anniversary or I go to a a graduation or I go to Christmas with the family. All these social events or family events. And I think I'm supposed to feel a certain way at these things. Mm -hmm. And I don't. I don't feel sad at a funeral. I don't feel happy at a wedding. I don't feel excited at a christening, spiritually or otherwise. At an anniversary, I go, yeah, so what? They hate each other, and they made it another year together. <laughs> I'm sorry, laugh, <laughs> but this is what we all look at. Like, they're still together? Yeah. So what are we celebrating, really? Uh, we're phony. We're trying to be nice, but we also know that we're pretending, like, Okay, I don't feel what I'm supposed to feel. So we're all imposters. Right. (laughs) Okay, bingo. Bingo, bingo, (laughs) bingo. And this is what we all know as we sit there. We all sit there knowing we're pretending. And nobody's being real. And we are living imposter lives, yearning to be genuine and afraid to because I don't want to give offense. I don't want to hurt your feelings. I don't want to be like the Debbie Downer because you look like you're having a good time. And I'm sitting here going, what's wrong with me? I have this deep down imposter syndrome that I don't feel what everyone else feels the same way they feel it when I'm supposed to feel it. And that is an underlying falsehood that I suffer from. I'm not supposed to feel the same thing everybody's feeling the same time they're feeling it. If you're cold in this room, am I supposed to be cold too? If you like spicy food, am I supposed to like spicy food? If you're sad at a funeral and I'm happy at a funeral because I'm celebrating their life and not their loss... And you look at me like I'm disrespecting their life because can't you see what a big loss this is for you? We're talking about the same thing, just from a different way of looking at it. We both are feeling for the grief of the moment, but one is emphasizing one aspect of it and another is feeling another, and neither are wrong. But when I've been told that I should feel, one way, and I don't, I'm an imposter. If I'm supposed to be sad at funerals and I'm not, I'm I'm pretending to be sad because I don't want to upset everybody else that I'm really kind of glad that their suffering is over, that the transition perhaps was a comfortable one and not a painful one. I mean, I can be glad for lots and lots of noble, healthy reasons. Not ding dong, the witch is dead, but okay, this was a life that I want to come and celebrate and and honor and respect. I don't need to compete and compare my feelings. It's that that makes me feel like an imposter when I think I should be feeling what you're feeling. No, I should be owning my own feelings. And then expressing them as kindly and as clearly as somebody else. You know, you say, I, I thought I would feel sad, but somehow I'm not. I'm more focused on this. And I can see that you're sad and I can understand that too. So there's an empathy and an inclusion, not a comparing and a criticizing. Like, why are you smiling? And I'm like, why are you wailing? crying? Mm-hmm. And neither question is valid.
0: Because both feelings are valid.
1: Absolutely. Equally valid. Equally permissible in this human experience called death. Or or, or even a wedding. Like, you go to a wedding and you go, those two aren't going to make it a year. You, you, you just go, come on, we're here pretending that we're happy about this. If I were a divorce attorney, I'd be giving him my card. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so You do a lot of marriage counseling, do you, Charlie? Apparently. <laughs> so,
1: I know, I know, I know. Forgive me. I'm talking about that it's impossible to generate genuine emotions from artificial rituals.
0: But the rituals.
1: <sighs> I cannot generate. Genuine emotions from an artificial ritual. I can go to the ritual and see how I feel. And if I'm willing to be comfortable and honest about my feelings, I will not feel like an imposter. I will just tell people what I'm feeling as I'm feeling it when they ask. If nobody's asking, I can just sit there and appreciate And notice what everyone else is feeling. But I don't have to say I have to feel that too. Because there's nothing wrong with what I'm feeling. Own it. So my integrity and my self-esteem are never negatively affected by me being honest, clear, and kind. They are decimated. It's like pouring acid on them. When I start to pretend, when I am insincere, when I am disingenuous towards you, thinking I'm protecting your feelings, I'm really treating you like a baby. I'm really like saying you can't handle the truth, a la a few good men. And that I find to be unloving. Uh, You may not agree with my feelings, but I don't know why you even want to argue with my feelings when I'm just telling you how I'm feeling. So we can talk about that. Like, why are my feelings not valid for me? I'm not telling you you should feel them. Just saying if you ask, this is what I'm feeling. If I care about what you're feeling, I say, now tell me about yours. And I'm not going to tell you you shouldn't be feeling that way. Because then you'd look at me like, why'd you ask? Did you ask to know me or did you ask to judge me? I want to ask to get to know you because I have no right to judge you at all. I don't know your context. I don't know your history. I don't know anything about weddings, funerals, and anniversaries for you. Except what I see right here in front of me. How are you feeling? Genuinely. Not what are you pretending to feel?
0: So quick side trip here. Get away from our main topic for a second. Because many times I don't know that a funeral, perhaps not even a wedding, is the right place to ask people about their feelings and you know that could be my bias that people may not have processed and i'll give you a perfect like a, a real life example uh, so we had a nephew who was taken suddenly at a very at a young age in his 20s Uh, Happened in the blink of an eye, aneurysm, and went to the funeral. And I remember my wife, who knows that I'm an emotional person, I remember her turning to me and saying, you're not crying. Why aren't you crying? And I had no desire at that point to talk about this at the funeral in front of other people. But I wasn't crying because I was terrified. I have two young boys. I was sad. I was sad that this young person had been taken away. And I felt terrible for his parents. But I was terrified. The thought that that can happen, that can happen to my boys. Mm -hmm. What about you? Well, wow. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. The uncertainty, the unpredictability of life itself, mm-hmm. is stark in in our face at moments uh, such as these. But if you had turned and looked at your partner and said, "I'm too scared to cry." That would have been honest, clear, and kind.
0: Well, this, and this perhaps gets to the, the posing, right? Because we as men, be we have to, yes, exactly. Okay. We need to be strong. We need, yes. Okay.
1: That is the imposter. The, the imposter says, I have to pretend in order to protect somebody else's feelings. What I'm really doing is shielding my own feelings from being exposed to another human being in a raw moment. Because I don't know what they are. I don't know if I start talking about them, where will it stop? Because this is really, really, really white hot. The idea of losing my two boys to something, anything similar even a car crash, even whatever. I mean, it's just like, there's no way that I can imagine all the ways they could die. Yeah. I could live in terror over the fear of losing the things I love like that. <sighs> <sighs> and so I block it out and I say, I must be strong. I would like to say I'd I'd like to look at this. I'd like to look at my humanity rather than deny it. I'd rather lean into this moment and let it tenderize the rest of my life rather than cauterize it and desensitize myself to the possibility that the last time I say goodbye to my son could be this morning.
0: Yeah, uh, so I think you've brought up something very interesting that the... Imposter sometimes comes to us because of how we think we are supposed to act in that moment. And uh, I'm, I'm going to take it back to the corporate world for just a minute. I apologize for interrupting the podcast, but this episode ended up running so long that we decided to turn it into a two-parter. This was a natural place to break up the episode, so we decided to start next week's episode talking a bit more about the corporate side of imposter syndrome. So please tune in to next week's part two of Would I Lie to You? Thanks for joining us for today's discussion. If you haven't figured this out by now, we love talking to each other and we hope you get something out of the listen. We really appreciate you spending a little bit of time with us and welcome your feedback. And you can provide that feedback on either Charlie's site at owningourselves.com or on my site, liveforwonder.com. We do have a website coming for the thinking Knot where we can gather your feedback in a more structured way. And we'll let you know as soon as that's ready. If you know people out there who can use some help working through imposter syndrome or or who just need some help to unknot themselves, please share this podcast with them and follow or subscribe, rate and review The Thinking Knot so others know to give it a try. Thanks again for listening. We hope your journey is filled with wonder and that every day you find time to celebrate your successes. Go ahead, give yourself a pat on the back and as always, be good to each other and don't forget to be good to yourself.